and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Paula Hawkins. Paula Hawkins' third book, A Slow Fire Burning, is out this week. We are talking about this latest psychological thriller from the author of not one, but two New York Times bestselling novels, including, of course, the very famous phenomenon girl on the train which came out several years ago and then of course into the water paula hawkins has demonstrated here with a slow fire burning and with the previous two novels that she's really a master of capturing the psychological state of the eyewitness of the suspect usually witnesses to horrific crimes or murders in in a slow fire burning there is a murder mystery but we are really really getting to know three of the primary suspects there is a young man who has been murdered on a houseboat in london we have the next door neighbor a little nosy a little insecure a little paranoid that's miriam we have the one night stand who was seen the night of the murder leaving the houseboat that's laura has a traumatic past had an accident in her youth has changed her life then we have the young man's aunt who is Carla has her own wounds, her own anxieties, and her own grief to get through tied to the loss of yet another family member. She's just endured the loss of her sister, the mother of this young man. And from there, it starts twisting and twisting as we get to know these three women, as we get to know what they're going through and how they feel and why they feel bitter about where they are in their lives. And when they start to interact with each other, what happens next? And If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably read Girl on the Train. I think A Slow Fire Burning is going to satisfy you. It's quite a twisty mystery, of course, but what is really marvelous about it is that you start to empathize with these characters who are technically cold, unlikable, what have you. The magic that starts to happen as as you turn these pages is you start to appreciate why these three women are, for their own reasons, simmering with resentment. So we talk about crafting these characters. We talk about structuring this novel. Paula Hawkins was working as a journalist for 15 years before turning her hand to fiction in 2015. And now this week, September, her third book, A Slow Fire Burning, is out. We start off talking about going beyond the tropes of the murder mystery and going much more deeper than just the surface level of the usual suspects and really, really getting to know these women who are being questioned about the offsetting murder. Here's our chat. Thank you. Uh, you ready to dive in? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, great. Uh, this book starts out with a murder. There is a mystery, yes, but uh, this isn't any old murder mystery because uh, if I can speak broadly, stories and books inside of that genre tend to have a colorful cast of suspects with varying motives, but I can't recall ever getting to know, truly getting to know down to the bone, the characters involved who are the suspects so well as we're able to with your portraits of Carla Laura and Miriam. It's uh, a signifying quality of the book. Can you talk about where your inspiration for this one came from or started and whether you knew very early that you would be delving so deeply into their lives beyond the murder? Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, the, the, the novel started with character. I think it always does with me. Um, I started with the character of Laura, actually. She's a, she, Laura's a young woman who is one of the suspects. She's had a one-night stand with the victim. She is a troubled young woman. She's had a, a difficult start in life. Um, she had an accident, which has left her with a condition called disinhibition, which means she, she behaves inappropriately. Sometimes she says inappropriate things. She makes bad choices. She's got a short temper, all these sorts of things. But we also 
she's also, you know, she's a kind person. She's a generous person. She's not a bad person. She's just someone who's, whose life has gone a bit off the rails and who struggles and feels very judged by society, harshly judged, because she is harshly judged. People don't understand her. A uh, couple of other characters, we have Miriam, who is uh, the neighbour of the murder man. So he, he was living on a houseboat on the Regent's Canal. And uh, the woman who lives on the boat next door is um, uh, sort of middle-aged lady. She's uh, she's a bit of a nosy neighbour. She's also sort of watching what everyone else is up to. And, you know, she's she's not warm. <laughs> None of the characters are no. what they say, I guess, no. are warm on the face of it. And yet um, I found empathy for all of them, even if they aren't well, warm. This is, you see, I, I, I love that you say that because what I like to do in, in, in a novel and what I enjoy myself when I'm reading fiction is to meet somebody and to form an opinion and then kind of have that opinion undermined maybe as I find out where they came from, how they got to this point. This is the bit that's always fascinating for me. It's um, the psychology around it. It's not the crime itself. It's how we got to this point where all these people who are on the face of it, relatively ordinary, they're not sort of involved in a criminal fraternity. They're not gangsters. They're not, uh, you know, they're not sociopaths. They're just people whose lives have gone wrong. And now they find themselves doing extreme things, behaving in extreme ways. And that's what Miriam is. She's someone who suffered something really terrible when she was a teenager and is now a deeply bitter person. She feels her powerlessness very acutely. She's middle-aged. She's not beautiful. She doesn't have children. She doesn't have a lot of money. And she knows that the world dismisses her and thinks of her as nothing. And she she feels that very strongly. Yeah. The third the third character we, um, is, is Carla, who's the aunt of the, the murdered man. And again, has suffered a loss, a terrible loss. And uh, Carla presents the world as very cold and very haughty and kind of, again, not warm. But, you know, that this is the mask. She's someone who's struggled, who's, who's had, had struggles to sort of hold it together, as you might do if you've had a, had a terrible loss. And her relationship with her nephew is extremely complicated, to say the least. So we've got all these uh, yeah, interlinking people. And, yes, I'm so glad that you you like, you like found the characters well-developed because that, for me, oh, yeah. is the most important thing is the is is getting to know these people. And although you may not like them at first, you, you understand them and you understand why they might behave in, in strange ways or extreme ways. Absolutely. What I found to be, and this speaks to the, perhaps the eponymous fire in the title is that I found particularly powerful about this book is that, and empowering maybe even, is that these characters are allowed to be as angry or as bitter as they need to be. And I, I also can't often recall books where we're able to do justice to any range of traumas endured by the characters. Uh, you know, can you talk about that? The decision to examine anger and what it might have been like emotionally as the writer, too, to, to put their monologues and their histories onto the page. Uh, yeah, that? I mean, I, I think I was thinking a lot about anger and a lot about women's anger, I guess, um, and particularly the anger possibly of middle-aged women whose anger is often seen as ridiculous or laughable or what have you. And um, or easily dismissed in any case. And I think that's what we, these women feel, particularly Mary and Laura, that they have been dismissed and overlooked. And I can imagine how, you know, you can imagine how frustrating that would be and how infuriating and how you would want to scream to make people, you know, notice you. And I think, you know, that's an interesting, it's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about how much anger there is um, in Amongst people who feel very disempowered. Oh, yeah. 
I also love the tense interplay of these scenes, especially early on of the scenes that are of kind of an interrogating nature between our leads and the police. I think there's a quote from one of the investigators that says, we never know what's going to be important. And I love that line. Um, but Miriam, Miriam especially, and Carla to an extent, exude such a relatable, nervous energy. Uh, can you talk about how you were able to successfully capture that dialogue specifically? There's something so uh, erratically rhythmic about the way that they talk. It's uh, We talk about realistic dialogue all the time, but it's such a specific thing to completely capture that nervous energy and how much we can, how much can be revealed by even one word or a behavioral tick that you just do it so well. Oh, thank you. I, I guess I was thinking about how uh, you know, obviously, it, it's unnerving for anyone really to be in, in a, a to be in, interviewed by a police officer, even if you you haven't actually done anything. But I think what is what's happening here is that even if they haven't actually done the thing they're being sort of interviewed about, that everybody has something that they don't really want to reveal, or some other something. There's something going on there. So I, I was thinking about that and how you might people say really like strange things and they go off on weird tangents and then think, why am I saying these things? You know, this is ridiculous. Um, but so it, it's that I was imagining myself, I guess, in that kind of situation where you're sort of desperately trying to say the right thing and inevitably saying very odd things mm -hmm. <laughs> as a result. Yeah. You're also, and this goes back to the characters you're creating, you're not just creating their dialogue, but they have these individual frames of mind and they have, Miriam has her past, Laura has her past. Those are their interior stress and the police mm. is like their exterior stress. So yeah. you really put them through a pressure cooker. Oh yes. These are incredibly stressed people, which is why I find it funny when people talk about them being, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't like them. I don't like their, how they're behaving, but you think you have to think, well, how would you be if you were stuck in this situation? That's the, that's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to imagine all the time is, you know, what would it be like to be in this situation? And you have to really imagine yourselves into those, those terrible, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, pressurized places. Oh, yeah. And then, and then just think how you would be. Yeah. Can you talk to us about how you found a rhythm with your structuring of the novel, uh, setting aside the balancing act of, three leads and two solid supporting characters. And it's almost meticulous. They really do get equal page time. So that was great balance there. But you're also weaving in a novel or a book within a book. So it becomes an engaging puzzle for the reader. What was it like to be a puzzle builder? What was that creative process like for you? Well, it was slow. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, it took a long time for me to get that balance right. And that, for me, is just a matter of trial and error. You've just got to try things out, see what works. Um, you know, I have uh, editors who, who read quite early on and could let me know when they thought, oh, no, we haven't had enough. You know, we, we want more Laura. We want. And I think that that was, you know, it was realizing which characters were kind of you needed a little bit more from a little bit less from. But there's also that whole uh, thing of when you. It's very, when you're writing a crime novel, you need to dole out certain pieces of information at certain times in order to make it a satisfying mystery. You have to give people a, like those enough of those, aha, I know what's going on now moments. And then then wrong foot them like 10 pages later. So the, all that kind of stuff, frankly, for me, it just takes a long time in order to do it successfully in a way that feels satisfying, in a way that doesn't feel forced. Yeah. It just is a real labor of love. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, it took me like two and a half years to write this book. So I was going to say, it sounds like you're a maze builder, but it does sound like there is something about it you find fulfilling. Uh, or a little oh, Yeah, fun. I mean, yeah. it's it's fantastic when it works, yeah. but it's also massively frustrating because it takes a really long time to get there. Sure. I think that 
uh, and I've read some reviews that have said this, that London almost also feels like another auxiliary character onto itself, the setting, uh, I feel it, and uh, the location seems to be subtly important to this book and really to to all your books, especially these domestic settings, whether it's it's a, a flat or a, a shabby tower or a boathouse or this idea of living on the water or if it's a bathroom or a bookcase. It's like the real dramas don't play out in the police station or the courthouse or in a high-speed shootout. The dramas are so internal and they simmer inside of these otherwise peaceful rooms. Is that something you're conscious of in your design? Well, I, yeah, I very much want to f- my novels to feel like they're rooted in ordinary everyday existence because they are, because as, you know, as I've said, this is not gangsters or spies or anything, you know, extreme like that. This is ordinary people's lives. So yes, people living in very ordinary places. I mean, sometimes slightly quirky. So here we have someone who lives on a houseboat. It's an unusual but to, place to live. But what, what I found interesting about that, that setting is so the Regents Canal runs right through the middle of London. There's these little houseboats on either side. There's quite grand Victorian houses that, that are now worth, you know, a lot of money. But in suppose with that you'll have tower um, blocks with which is more like social housing so all sorts of different kinds of people all jumbled up cheek by jowl close together but yes very much these domestic stories my stories tend to be about family relationships gone wrong you know uh, romantic relationships gone wrong that's where the drama in my novels happens so yeah I wanted to feel like this this is taking places in, in an ordinary place. It could be it could be your neighbors. It could be anyone you know. Um, it's very much the day, of the day to day. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to ask about what it was like. Could we mention this character Theo? I find him to be fascinating as well. We talked about the three women in this book. There is a gentleman, and he has written a book as well. And he's I don't know. Again, I feel like allegiances and empathies get twisted and turned all around here. What was it like writing him? Well, Theo. I mean, Theo is a bit of a pompous idiot he's a he's a best-selling novelist he thinks quite a lot of himself but I think the thing is again what redeems Theo for me is that he loves he's unfailingly devoted to his wife well it's actually his ex-wife now he's they're separated and so they suffered a a a family trauma a tragedy and so that there are yes he's a bit of an idiot sometimes but there are there are and he does something terrible actually as well he also he's also guilty of something but there is I, I I do think he is redeemed by his his loyalty and his love for his wife that he would do anything for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of fun with him. Actually, he was probably the like that was where the lightness came in for me was writing Theo's parts. And I think you do want some some lightness when you're writing about pretty dark subject. Oh sure. And then one last quick question: Did you find your own empathies and allegiances shifting? I mean, there are times where. Miriam is having a very bad time. At times where Laura is very having a very bad time. You're the creator, master, author here. Did you ever have moments where like, oh, I'm really feeling bad for what I'm putting them through? I mean, I have my favorites. Okay. I definitely do. But I do feel tender towards all of them at certain points. Yeah. In the, you know, and, and, and then at other points, I think they're despicable. Well, because they are. They do despicable things. But right. I certainly, there's, a, there's, you know, there's rawness, there's vulnerability. There, is, there are moments when you just, when I personally anyway feel for all of them. Yeah, yeah and the, but they are strong. You've made them strong at the end. Um, you know, they are, they are, the three of them are all like tempered steel. You know, they might be. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Nobody is, nobody is, is a, you know, a pushover. Nobody is a complete victim. They've suffered things, but they're not taking everything lying down. Yeah. Well, it is a terrific mystery. I had such a good time reading it. A slow fire burning. Paula Hawkins, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye.
That was our chat with Paula Hawkins about her latest psychological thriller, A Slow Fire Burning, her third book, following her bestseller Into the Water and the international bestseller Girl on the Train. But her latest is A Slow Fire Burning, which is a mystery, yes, but also a meditation on this anger that manifests right around middle age, this search for inner peace, the erosion of secrets upon the soul, and the concept of revenge and how far good people might go. Are they capable of terrible deeds as well? So check it out. Very glad to have Paula Hawkins here on the podcast. It's a little too quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and the music that you hear coming in and out of these episodes is by a local musician known as Zunset. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to ferndalefriends.org, or you could leave a comment or like us or follow us or subscribe us or subscribe to us, you know, out there on the iTunes platform or tell a friend about it the next time you see them. If you really liked this episode, share it to social media as well. We'd appreciate that. And we appreciate you listening. We will be back next week with more. Bye.